Welcome, everybody. Good to have you here. Um, uh, I'll make this very short so we can uh, have Andre read and talk about his work. I just want to say a little bit that my thoughts about Andre Kondreski before we start. I've interviewed him, I checked the records now, seven times over the last uh, 18 years uh, of being on the air. And uh, a very funny little piece happened last night. Uh, somebody we both know, who is one of my great intellectual mentors, a man named Al Engelman, brilliant man, lovely man. I told him I was interviewing Andre today, and uh, he says, Ah, I remember Andre. I said, Yeah, I know, I thought you would. He says, Yes, I remember when he was peddling his poems on notebook paper from waste place to place. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I met uh, Andre back when he was at Hopkins, and it was in the 80s, uh, and um, when Deborah Birnbaum and others were, formed this little coterie of uh, mad poets, writers, dancers, theater people uh, in this community uh, in Baltimore. And uh, Andre, I think, is one of our very special writers. He was, as you know, many of you probably do know, maybe you don't, was born in Romania. I always think of Andre as one of the, the survivor babies, having been born just post-Holocaust in, uh, in Romania to Jewish parents, uh, left there. Uh, when the so-called liberation became a terror on anybody who was creative or wanted to think freely, uh, and made his way to Italy and other places and to here. Uh, and in the process, he garnered himself a Peabody for um, an incredible uh, movie that he made. He was on at least two push carts, yeah. something like that, uh, and has been a voice on National Public Radio that you've all heard. Uh, somebody who can match humor with deep intellect and, and connects pieces and spots across the artistic, political, intellectual realm that often people have a hard time connecting and also make them humorous at the same time. Uh, and and um, it sounds like I'm doing, you're awake and you're still alive. <laughs> sure, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> I got stuck on that humor part. <laughs> so... Um, and, and his last several books, Wakefield, was uh, if, you, if you've read that one, was an incredible uh, piece that uh, I just fell in love with. Uh, and I fell in love with his work, a new book of poetry. And, uh, but without further ado, I want to introduce you all to, to the man you know, Andre Kondrescu, who will read, talk, then we'll have some questions from the audience and from me, Andre Kondrescu. Thank you so much, Mark. I, I, I think I'm supposed to probably read from here since the microphone is here. Is that right? I mean, uh, I just stood because I saw the podium, and one stands automatically when one sees the podium, no? Yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to talk from the podium, which is good. I'm, I'm here uh, because it's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Mark and, and Greg. And to be here now is... Uh, I mean, I, I, I was here not so long ago, but... I just, my last book is called The Poetry Lesson, and this is where it's about teaching and, uh, in a way, uh, about teaching. And this is where that particular racket started for me in Baltimore. I, I needed to make money to, uh, to live, and so I started by teaching uh, first at uh, CCB downtown and then at Essex Community College which has four enormous bus rides in the winter because I didn't drive uh, then and I don't drive now, but uh, it was quite uh, excruciating and hard. And so I was pretending to be a teacher, and uh, I kept pretending up, uh, I was at Hopkins. And I moved to Louisiana in 1984, and I went to Louisiana State University, and I continued pretending, and they kept uh, rewarding me for faking it. Um, <laughs> You know, so actually with a chair in the end, uh, uh, a distinguished professor chair, which I was, uh, you know, was hilarious to me because they, <laughs> they didn't have a chair, but it certainly was, um, was, uh, was uh, uh, a considerable raise in salary. So I had nothing against faking it as long as they kept, kept doing that and not... And not actually making me do anything except be with young people and do what I did, always did at a bar, talk about poetry. <laughs> and uh, I didn't go to any meetings because they didn't want me to go to meetings because poets are not really welcome at faculty meetings. So they're, they're liable to do anything at any 
time. And so I, time was drawing towards retirement, and I thought, how wonderful. I affected for all these years, and I'm soon going to retire, and they'll give me a pension. And, but I miscalculated. My math wasn't too good, so I ended up my last semester living in a hotel in Baton Rouge, waiting for it all to end so I could make my 25 years. And then I decided that each uh, seminar, which was a weekly seminar, a three-hour undergraduate seminar in poetry, I would go to the coffee house after the seminar and write down everything that happened, and I would give them the most outlandish uh, assignments I could think of, because undergraduates are wonderful. They'll do anything you tell them. Say, oh, sure, you know, uh, you know, memorize Horace in Latin, no problem. Um, so I did that in the afternoon. It was a 3 to 6 p.m. seminar. In the morning, uh, I wrote a more serious book called The Post-Human Dada Guide, Tara and Lenin Play Chess. It's a wonderful book about the 20th century, which uh, R.I.P. gone. Um, but it is about the first half of the 20th century, and it's about the daddy of Dada, Tristan Tara, and the daddy of communism, V.I. Lenin, and their putative chess game, which probably did take place in Zurich, Switzerland in 1914. Anyway, I was writing that in the morning, a serious book of some, with, of some research, um, and the subject I've been interested in all my life. In the afternoon, I tried to amuse myself writing the poetry lesson, but then as I was writing the poetry lesson, I started to remember things about poets and other matters related only tangentially to teaching poetry, so it became a little more than uh, amusement, it's a cruel amusement at the expense of my students. And... Um, uh, so Princeton University, published, uh, University Press published, uh, the, uh, as they did, the Dada book, The Post-Human Guide, and it has, you know, this uh, figure of the skeleton kneeling and praying on the book, you know, which is the sort of the poet pose. Uh, <laughs> somebody had a bright idea of doing this, and uh, I thought I would read a little bit from this, but what occurred to me was that... Uh, Part of the the book really does take place in Baltimore, and it uh, concerns an all-night fight that uh, Anselm Hollow and Ted Berrigan and myself had on the subject of Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And uh, it started out as a discussion, and it ended up being this sort of all-night argument. So it's in here, and I'm going to read that, but to set it up, I, I'll just read a little bit of, of the last poetry class and the assignments that I did give them. Please turn off your cell phones. <laughs> the day the university tested its text message alert to every cell phone on campus, I assigned epitaphs to my introduction to poetry writing class. Every morning when you get up, write an epitaph. I watched them scribble something. That's good, I encouraged them. Start right away. Though I knew that what they were scribbling were not epitaphs, but every morning when you get up, write an epi, epi, pipi, epi. And while you're at it, turn off your cell phones. I always say this the first, day, the first class of the semester, but I didn't realize that now they would be unable to receive the text message alert test. If a real wacko wired to a bomb tried shooting his way to fame inside this very door, would have been unworn. I consoled myself with the fact that the Virginia Tech wacko who had killed fellow students had been enrolled in poetry class. If there was a wacko, he could be in my class writing his epitaph. An epitaph a day is like an apple a day, but the opposite actually, because an apple a day keeps the doctor away, but an epitaph is ready if you happen to die that day. The apple part is rhymed poetry. The dying part is blank verse. <laughs> I gave them examples of famous epitaphs by blank verse poets like Ted Berrigan, see you later, and have a nice day. And by rhyming poets, such as John Keats, who only wrote part of his own epitaph, either because he died too young or because his executors found it too terse. This grave contains all that was mortal of a young English poet who on his deathbed in the bitterness of his heart and the malicious power of his enemies desired these words to be engraven on his tombstone. Here lies one whose name was written water. 
which doesn't rhyme, I explained. And not only doesn't it rhyme, but the poet's name is entirely missing. In this regard, at least they respected his wish even as they chucked it in prose. It's a good thing that when I visited the grave of John Keats in Rome, in the Protestant cemetery where he is buried next to Gregory Corso, a cat who lives in the cemetery stole the panino with mortadella from my jacket pocket and made off with it in the direction of a pyramid built CE by a Roman senator during one of the periodic Egyptian crazes of the Romans. Too bad, too, because I didn't have any money and I'd gotten the sandwich from a nun in a charity dispensing convent. Behind the grave of John Keats grows a lyre-shaped tree that is obviously pruned carefully, though the cemetery itself at the time of my visit was in a state of neglect. Next to John Keats is buried his friend Joseph Severn, whose epitaph notes that he's a friend of John Keats, the poet buried next to him, so that even though John Keats's name is missing from his own grave, he is made present by his dead friend next to him, which is a kind of rhyme, what does that tell us? A skinny, mob-styled, redhead girl fingering what looked like a worry bead, but was actually the earbud of, ear of her iPad, said that if you don't write your epigram, you might have to rely on your friends. Precisely. I now assign you in addition to an epitaph and epigram. For this class, you must also write an epigram every day. An epigram is a very short poem with a clever twist at the end that shows off your wit. For example, in, in my next life I will make a lot of croaking noises, but I will live a long time because in my next life I will be a gold frog like the one that sits on your desk, father. This is an epigram I made up in the style of the Roman poet Lucian. Now, if I was in a hurry, I might combine my assignment into an epitogram, which is an epitaph plus an epigram. Something like, I am a gold frog in this life, and I will leap at you from behind this tombstone when you are finished reading. <laughs> and then I will jump out and scare the shit out of the poor pilgrim to my grave, who happens to be an executive for a U.S. insurance company with a penchant for poems, like Wallace Stevens who is vacationing by visiting the graves of important poets around the world. Can you identify the wit in this epitogram? Well, the book is not written entirely in the pedagogical mode, as my friend Simon Patel put it. But, you know, obviously I was having a great deal of fun, and it goes, it goes on. There's quite a bit about the graves of poets, including a building. One of my students is a rich boy whose family bought a decommissioned nuclear silo in South Dakota uh, and uh, took the entire family and buried it in there, and there was plenty of room, and I proposed that we make that a poet uh, um, grave, a vertical <laughs> uh, tomb, tomb structure with uh, bookshelves between the which he thought was quite interesting. I said, well, could you please draw this? So I have a drawing of it as well. So it has a picture. But then I remember, you know, doing this about this business of uh, arguing all night with, um, with Anselm Hollow, who was living here then. And he's okay, by the way, for those of you who, who wonder what he was up to. He just had an operation to take a large benign tumor out of his head, and uh, it was successful, and apparently he will, he will think better, too, uh, after it's gone. Yeah, out of the 11 languages that he speaks, at least six will come back. Um, but um, um, anyway, Anselm, uh, Ted Bergen was here. He was giving a reading at the Art Institute in, uh, in Chicago, and uh, we did what we always did, which is to drink and to talk. Okay, the, yeah, the, this part picks up where the students come back from a break. In the course of a three-hour seminar, I gave them two breaks to go, and, and uh, the, what they do. In the, when I finished teaching, very few of them went out to smoke anymore because they weren't smoking anymore. Only two of my students were still smoking. It's extraordinary. So I remember when I first began teaching, everybody was completely restless because they had to immediately go out and smoke. But, you know, instead they went and peed. My students started returning one by one ounces of urine lighter. Some were even smiling as if the brief contact to their genitals had restored their sense of well-being. 
Well, I know, assignments can be a downer. But I was not done assigning. Last semester I had assigned sadomasochism and creative misreading, and now there are ghosts to distribute and many lines to scan before the end of class. This is a reference to the fact that I assigned every one of them a ghost companion, what I call the GC, which was a, a dead poet or a famous poet, uh, that they had to not only study and research, but carry with them at all times. So anytime they had any kind of question, no matter how trivial, like where should I go for lunch, they would open the book and ask their GC uh, the question, and uh, the ghost companion would, of course, tell you exactly what you're supposed to do. It's a wonderful, oracular way of leading your life. So uh, I wasn't done assigning these ghost companions because every time I assigned one, I remembered things about the poet. And so I, I wrote that. So um, uh, one of them, John, called me Jack Ferris, still smelled like smoke. He'd had another during break. This is one of my two smokers. Perhaps even peed while smoking. He did look like young Johnny Rodden years away from coherence. An economics major, more like a burglar pretending to be a ballerina. Doctor, I googled Ferlinghetti and it'll soon be time to get out of here. I want Ferlinghetti. He said this before he even sat down, which prompted Bennigan and other students to quip. We do have to get out of here, no matter who Ferlinghetti is. I had nothing against assigning the great poet citizen San Francisco's anarchist Charlie Chaplin, to, who named his bookstore City Light and published The Beats to Jack Ferris, but I wasn't going to make it easy. I spent an entire night in the early 80s arguing with Ted Bergen and Anselm Hollow for Ferlinghetti's poetry. That was two of them, Ted and Anselm against one, me. Granted, we stayed up all night, many nights in those days, drinking and doing bumps now and then, so this kind of debate was not unheard of, it was almost a game. This particular argument, however, was quite sharp, and it had a depth that became downright personal and offensive at times, and at one point it looked like a physical fight might break out, which was nothing short of ridiculous, because poets are lousy fighters. Besides, we were at my house in Baltimore, and my wife and child were sleeping, and if we'd fallen over the furniture, she'd have come down and kicked all our asses. I have no idea what it was about Ferlinghetti's poetry that aroused such passions. Everyone agreed that the man was exceptional, a person of integrity and conviction, a wonderful publisher, a tolerant bookstore owner, where in my youth I often stole my first book to give to girls who waited outside in the rain for me to see if I really was who I said I was, a published poet, and seeing from the first poem they read that I really was, slept with me at the $5 a night Dante Hotel. An anarchist and pacifist resistor in World War II, a civic activist who persuaded the city of San Francisco to name numerous streets after poets and writers, a partisan of our art, and an upright human being who spoke at public meetings. His poetry, however, was a battlefield. I stood sword and shield on the side of Ferlinghetti, who wrote the poetry bestseller and unequaled feats, A Coney Island of the Mind, while Ted was sent his formidable armies against us. Anselm, who intended in those days to agree with, who, with everyone who bought the next drink, campaigned first with me, then with Ted, in whose camp he faithfully stayed until dawn came and he passed out. Poetry is a bloody business, and it's for no idle reason that Sultan Murat II demanded his battlefield dispatches in verse and beheaded unskilled generals. After Anselm passed out in the huge red, red sun rose over the red brick of Baltimore's row houses, Ted, Ted and I kept skirmishing over the merits of Ferlinghetti's poetry, a battle that by that time was no longer about Ferlinghetti's poetry at all, but poetry and the polis, the agora and the poet. In my view, all poetry was political because it critiqued intrinsically all that came before it, including poetry. And Ted thought it something deliberate, an effort, like getting out of bed to go to a meeting and fight the police. And so we shouted until my wife woke up, and then it was all over. Her dreams had been troubled. We took my five-year-old son to the inner harbor. We walked in the chilly morning and continued to argue as the little fellow tried to keep up with the chain-smoking fiends, one of whom was his delirious father. He tugged at my shirt as we went past a diner and said, I'm thirsty. I didn't hear him, and I said, it's part of who the citizen is. And Ted said, for Christ's sakes. 
and steered the kid into the diner and asked for a glass of water. I was stunned by the extraordinary speed of change in Ted's priorities, and his marvelous response won him the argument. In the end, Ferlinghetti had nothing to do with it. A responsible citizen of the world sees to it first that children get water when they're thirsty. Ted dropped the jive at the first sound of real human need and acted. Poetry schmoetry. Ted was my hero, and he's my GC today. I'll get you a glass of water if you're... And today I'll get you a glass of water if you're thirsty, even if it means delaying my Nobel Prize by 30 years. A lesson like that you don't get in school. I was reluctant to hand Ferlinghetti over to Jack Ferris, my business major, for fear that he might employ him to manipulate the stock market somehow. On the other hand, Ferlinghetti, publisher and store owner, was no slouch at business. I knew he'd do Ferris good. For one thing, the boy had Googled him, more than you can say for the English majors who were either slam frequenters or fresh from the fields. It also looked like Ferris needed to quit smoking, and if ever there was a foe of that habit, it was San Francisco's poet laureate. So I said, you can't just have Ferlinghetti. You have to memorize him. That's not why I'm saying it, man. I mean, you better give him to me now. We have to hurry up. Ferris looked grave. I looked around and saw that everyone's smiles had vanished. Chloe looked at her cell phone screen like she'd just seen death. What is it? Text message alert. It's just an alert, man, said Betty Garland. She's a great character, actually. I was at the crossroads again. This seems to occur with some regularity these days. I don't mean the ever-present crossroads that face one every second. Do I turn left or right? Do I go or do I stay? Those are fundamental. My successful suicide, this is another one of my characters here, my successful suicide had glimpsed fundamental binary nature and made a choice, one or one. This is one of my former students who was schizophrenic, but uh, part of the, the manifestation was to go to uh, libraries all over this country and, and circle either the letter or the number one in every poetry book. Harvard is full of them. I mean, they can't get rid of them. They just, there's probably some in here. <laughs> had he continued to oscillate, as we all must, between one and zero, he'd have had no reason to off himself. We live with the paradox and the choices of our binary reality because, as Ted once put it, the job of the organism is to survive. The kind of crossroads I was at now was of the sort that occurs more often these days, like tornadoes, earthquakes, floods, holes in the ozone, falling satellites, terror alerts, financial crises of a magnitude inconceivable before. At the first sight of such incoming horrors, the roads divide quickly, sometimes leaving a person only a few minutes to make a choice between running left or right, upstairs or downstairs, outside or inside. This particular crossroads was caused by a text message I hadn't yet read, but that clearly scared my students enough to make them unsure of whether they should stay or go. What does the test alert say? Betty read, this is a test of the university-wide text message alert. If you have received it, you will be alerted in an emergency <laughs> and told where to take shelter and find safety. This is only a test, so if you are reading it, the test was successful. <laughs> So it's only a test, yeah, um, and so on. Lovely things happen. Um, <laughs> that particular period of living in Baltimore was very fruitful and rich. There are poets here of every sort, and a gang of us, as Mark uh, mentioned, and we made poetry. Uh, there were poetry readings. There was uh, a lot of intense... Uh, I mean, Clorinda is here who was very much, uh, you know, in, in, he remembers, I'm sure, all of that. And, uh, you know, and some of the poets who are here who are uh, just no longer with us, but I think of them always as part of Baltimore and alive in some way, because if you're a poet, death makes no difference to you, really. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's another one of those things. Uh, so, but, you know, I do think, you know, if, uh, Joe Cardarelli is certainly, you know, and most recently David Franks and... Um, great uh, Baltimore writers. And um, 
I realized that I had written a book in Baltimore and I changed my style somehow. I just changed everything I knew about poetry to write this book. And uh, it's a book that nobody's ever seen and nobody will ever see because the publisher sent me the entire edition and promptly committed suicide. Um, it's um, Crowfoot Press. Uh, it's called Diapers in the Snow. It's, I, you know, I was a young father then, and the, my first uh, uh, section of poems here is called Panic on Melville and Frisbee, which was the intersection of the two streets I lived uh, on uh, here in Baltimore next to the old Babe Ruth Stadium. And uh, so I thought it was a lovely, lovely combination of names. And I wrote this poem in a completely unaccustomed way for me, uh, really probably influenced by Anselm Hollow, who was there, was here then, and uh, whose poems are, f are wonderfully spaced on the page. They go everywhere, and they contain their own, uh, you know, they double up, and they're ironic and funny and interesting at the same time. Not that this was, but it took off from something Anselm said. Anselm said, I just, uh, I just saw Robert Creeley, Another great American person. I saw Robert Crilly, and Robert Crilly was about one one a.m. and he said, "Time to get in my jammies." And I said, "I have never, I have never heard uh, anybody over six saying jammies." <laughs> well, people have picked it up since, I'm sure, but. Anyway, it was rather an unusual thing. So we conceived immediately uh, an anthology of immigrant poets like ourselves. Uh, Anselm had, was born in Finland, and English was, you know, his second or third language for writing. And, and I was, I'm Romanian, and it's also my, English is my third or fourth language. And so we decided to call the anthology Ethnic Jammies. <laughs> and so... I wrote this ethnic jammies poem called An Immigration Imitation for Those Named Therein. And I think, I think, I think Joe's named in here, Joe Cardola, actually. Ethnic jammies, the takeover of America through the second person, you, by polite men from other countries pretending to be nude while clothed in ill-fitting suits continues. Garlic men locked in a Bible Goat women inside Mrs. Twack. Several of each, fog over bridge. Anselm maneuvering the rapids on a tiny raft of quotation marks. Quote, horses are just big rabbits, unquote. You hear Jamie and <laughs> Anselm said that. Horses, maybe they are, I don't know. I don't know horses very well. I just love Jamie's book, but I didn't know anything about horses before I read that. Horses are just big rabbits, thereby detaching thuds, a large chunk of classical folklore. Investments, buy songs for the future, like Mr. P. McCartney, who has just bought the rights for now and in perpetuity to Buddy, Can You Spare a Dime? Roger. Roger Roger riding through the desert in the sauna. The body is dying, the soul is dying. Have mercy on your woodwork. The stock pyramid. I think he was quoting at the beginning there some Talmudic thing, but I, I didn't remember enough to put it between quotation marks. Mr. JC, and this was Joe Cardarelli, hunting Romanoff eggs, riding over the roofs through the lines of high-tension pasta in the American night. To know what it can do for you, read the side effects. Euphoria. The fractional people rise from the figures, 2.3 per TV set, clustered around, ready to make the 1.4 baby of the house, where they live 4.8 of the life. Heat men, composed of garlic, rise in a bulbous fist from the human garden on the avenue. Nanos discoverer of a cure for arthritis of the milieu, points to the sky. This house had no view before the earthquake, unquote. <laughs> of course, there's a little bit of California I got snuck in here. So. Munificent universes, posing at Mamexan, last chance for a hot meal for Kodak in color. Everyone's heart sinks simultaneously. Genetic letterists engineering the written painted city. I realized actually reading this now for the first time in ever uh, that 
there is a bit of California in there, and I don't know how it, it got there, but I was writing this in Baltimore, so, but I had lived in California before, so the, I read Nanos, is Nanos Valoridis, who's a dear friend and who, um, um, you know, uh, and publisher, and uh, we discussed the avant-garde together a great deal because he'd been a friend of Andre Breton and part of the surrealist uh, scene in the, four, in the 30s, and... Uh, uh, of course, uh, the, uh, one of the people who came up continually was one of our dear avant-gardists, a Romanian named Isidori Zhu, who was a letterist, who made much of uh, each letter of the alphabet being somehow a complete key to um, to universal wisdom. Uh, Isidori Zhu was a nut, and... Um, <laughs> But he he did, you know, I mean, he was sort of a simplified version of the avant-garde, you know. He he was a protégé of Tristan Zara, not because Zara particularly liked Izu, because Izu really was a pain in the ass, but um, Zara didn't have that many friends at this point in his life. And he was a disciple who actually absorbed everything with great, you know, uh, wonder. And so, but any, anyway, so the, you know, our, our genetic letterists made their way to Baltimore somehow. So um, when we were, when I wrote this, we were definitely had a written painted city because there are so many writers and painters around. And there was, the feeling was that uh, somehow, uh, and, and, and we weren't wrong, it's just that we were delayed. Uh, that art indeed is a, is a, is a solution as opposed to ideology. And in the post in the post-human data guide, the chess game is between Tristan Zara, who is the the partisan of art of the impulses of art, and uh, ideologue Lenin, who is envisioning a, compl- a, a utopia that uh, one arrives at rationally. And so, uh, you know, we thought we had it, and we knew the right way, and in fact, we did. It's just that it took time. Uh, it's terrible being in the avant-garde, you know. It's okay to be a little in the avant-garde, but who wants to die first, right? I mean, <laughs> anyway, what well, those, uh, those, and then I thought I would read a couple of works from, um, uh, you know, about, you know, actually poetry, which is what I write. I mean, I write these things, too. Um, this book is called Jealous Witness, and it was written, uh, most of the poems here were written in two days, for the New Orleans Klezmer All-Stars, a wonderful uh, music group who scattered all over the country because of uh, the Katrina events. And uh, uh, Jonathan, one of them, asked if I would write. I had any poems about Katrina, but I don't, you know, write in, in the middle of disasters. I just try to, you know, you know patch the leaky boat. I mean, you know. Uh, but um, uh, I wrote these for them, and they came back to New Orleans and to a studio, and they made a wonderful CD with all kinds of people who, are, who, who happened to be around at that time. And the CD is in the book. It's called um, it's called um, uh, Maelstrom: Songs of Storm and Exile, because everybody was out of the city. The city had been evacuated. There was nothing but National Guard in the city during the height of the flood. And uh, they were so bored that they were shooting at each other. You know, we almost had a civil war from the between the New Mexico National Guard and the Louisiana National Guard in New Orleans. But this is a poem I wrote a little before that, before the city was emptied. And so, what do you call this catastrophe? This catastrophe sonnet it used to be called New Orleans. Now it's simply the greatest engineering disaster in U.S. history. Before that, it was the greatest human disaster in pre-Civil War history, the place to sell slaves who misbehaved downriver, and before that, the greatest rum, sugar, and human warehouse in North America, the end of the pipe, out of which poured sweet drunkenness and blood and patois from Martinique through the through the pirate Spanish main. Before that, it was just the greatest swamp a drunk Frenchman ever dedicated to his son King. So let's rebuild this with new urban principles that bow to history without throwing up. Well, yeah, we had sentiments in those days. I love it that in my, you know, life, which seems very brief, but I mean, it's long, uh, there were a great many occasions of dramatic, historic occasions that... uh, gave birth to sentiments, you know, I mean, sentiments wedded to history are quite extraordinary, you know, I mean, not that history doesn't happen every second, or sentiments, but they usually happen separately.
you know, great sentiments don't coincide necessarily with great his, history or historic events. But in this case, you know, or, you know, that historic tragedy will cause every sentiment. <laughs> the whole scale is in all of them. Desk 07 in the reading room at the British Library, July 19, 2003. Marx and Engels write to the Communist Manifesto at the next desk, 08. While at 06, Bram Stoker is looking over Transylvania in a book. Thieves operate in this room above my leather desk, 07. Lenin at 05 is penning communiques. His application for a reader's card under the name Jacob Richter has been approved yesterday, and it will end in the permanent exhibit at the British Library being viewed by Andre and Laura Kodrescu. Richter, says Laura, like the scale. Jacob Richter will cause a large magnitude earthquake in the world. In the Czech Republic, a few days hence, the couple is met by a student named Geiger, born after the Velvet Revolution that undid Lenin's earthquake many millions of dead people later. And the new name is born out of the still-heaving womb of the 20th century, Geiger Richter, a radiation reader who detects seismic activity. The Memory and Mind exhibition at the British Museum until September 23, 2003. Marx and Engels go to the pub. They've had a good day on the manifesto where they admire the bartender Jenny, Karl Marx's future wife, to whom who is already penning dreadful love poems. He is careful to hide from Engels. Frau Engels expects the man for dinner. She's fuming. The roast is dry. They've been at the pub for six hours, imagining the future. The future, my ass, explodes, Frau Engels. It's not Jenny, isn't it? Bram Stoker goes walking on Hampstead Heath with a boner for Lucy, who is already succumbing in his mind to the Transylvanian count he has just imagined. The future will include Jenny and Frau Engels only for a little while, and the Marxian utopia and the vampire will go on a long while. The Marxian future fails spectacularly after two-thirds of a century but the vampire keeps chugging along far from spent into the third millennium. Thieves operate in this room. How true. Thieves among whom are future burglars, a.k.a. poets, imagination workers, poor young in love with waitresses and virtuous corruptible Lucys, too shy to ever steal anything physically, not afraid, on the other hand, to break into the future and clean it out without as much as an apology to us, heirs and victims of utopia and vampires, time thieves and widow-makers, quietly penning verses. So, <laughs> yeah, for anyone who thinks our business is benign, um, are we leaving? Is it time to go? I guess <laughs> we can. I mean, um, well, I'll just end with one work then. Not, or two very short poems. Okay. Yeah, okay. You just stop them from leaving physically. You can't leave now. I'm here. Um, okay, well, just uh, present to the ceremony. Art won. There wasn't even a contest. Now art is on TV every time you turn it on. You used to say that art is the great, is the great enemy, and now it's true. There was a time when that sounded like a joke made by an artist, poised with a cigar between a neon sign for bar and the monk moon. Art is the greatest enemy. Another drink, please. Then swaggering home under the monk moon, weeping, the technology of the cosmos arrayed itself predictably overhead as art advanced in the dark on the backs of stealthy products, which entered the mouth of sleepers like serpents. In the morning, everyone had strange appetites. They drove fantastic wombs to work. And when they got there, work was a game, and everybody was ready to play. I have swallowed my reptiles early. The police made me do it. Everybody else had to wait until the devices became user-friendly, and they put white smoke and sugar on the reptiles. <laughs> and a perfectly comprehensible little work that's for my friends from other countries who are doubtlessly here, called... Um, 
Well, maybe it doesn't exist. I just, uh, <laughs> I just imagine I have friends from other countries. Um, oh, yeah, here you go. It's... Uh, well, maybe it just really doesn't exist. So. Oh, yeah, 93. I got it. I promise. And it's extremely short. Have I really been speaking for an hour? Not yet. What time is uh, it? I have no idea. Okay. Well, there's a clock. It's quarter right. Often after a public event, it's called often, often after a public event, a pretty girl, curly black hair, framing literary ambition, or a shy tall boy, black curly hair, burning with sympathy, will say something in a foreign accent to me, we are from Bosnia, Hungarians or Jews, my mother was born near your city, back then it was in another country. Now we are from here. What should we do with our accents? <laughs> do like me, I say. Keep talking. <laughs> Thank you. It is true, poetry will outlive human beings. That was a graffiti in the Trieste uh, bathroom that said, La poesia non finirà col mundo. The poetry will not end with the world. It's the true. world will end, but poetry will still be around, yes. It'll be all over the world. <laughs> That's right. Poetry and insects. Um, Andre was on National Public Radio and disappeared off to a revolution to cover it. The revolution of actually the country he was born in. That revolution in Romania. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened is, you know, the question was, what was my real mission? Well, National Public Radio thought my mission was to be a reporter and cover things, you know. <laughs> my mission really was to smell things. I went there to just see how my, to smell. I went there for my olfactory, you know, <laughs> selfish olfactory uh, yearning. I wanted to see if my hometown still smelled like strudel on Sunday. It was a German, old German old town, and I wanted to just smell the country and to hear the language. And I wanted to really immerse myself in the sounds of my third language. <laughs> the one I spoke the most during my childhood and adolescence, but still was my third language because German and Hungarian were my first. But um, I just wanted to sense it, sense the country. That was my mission. So, you know, every time they asked me to write something about it, I would lead off with, you know, there were a thousand people somewhere and they smelled like uh, wet clothes and enthusiastic, unwashed young bodies with guns. How was that for real? The people who have, not that people who were younger have not, didn't hear those broadcasts, didn't hear what you did. I mean, going back to Romania, your works are now published in, in Romanian, they're back in the country you were born in for the first time. And so, what was it like to go back in that, at that moment for those who haven't, didn't hear that in that time? Yeah. Well, I had the good luck to go with some really good reporters, for one thing. And so, there was uh, Michael Sullivan and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bob Siegel was there, and, uh, you know, and Michael was a fearless, he was just a fearless reporter. I mean, he, I was very shy about approaching people and talking to them, and Michael would just drop, he says, well, go, go ask that guy something. And they'll say, well, you know, how am I going to do that? And Michael said, I just came from dropping my microphone into a grave, you know, people are throwing themselves in, weeping, you know, and they were asking me how you would talk to somebody, you know, who's walking around. So, you know, I learned a bunch from those guys. Now, what it was like, it was extremely, uh, you know, it was a super stew of emotions I was experiencing because I hadn't been back there in uh, longer than a quarter of a century. And to hear the language again and see people and then see a country that was exalted, I mean, where everyone was in a state of ecstatic, a state of exaltation because they... They, they were able to say anything out loud for the first time in a long time, and they thought that that was liberty, that it had come to them in some way. And uh, so they were just drunk for the most time and happy. And uh, everyone tried to go to the TV station, and I remember this huge mob in front of the TV station because they let people go in and talk. 
and say whatever they wanted, so they barely screened them. And one, uh, there was a woman waving a, a blank sheet of paper, and I said, well, what are you going to do in there? And she said, I want to, to, to sing and read a poem, a song I wrote for the new liberated free Romania. And I said, but there's nothing on the paper. And she said, there will be something when I get to the microphone. <laughs> Well, the, the 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 revolution itself and revolutions when they happen, these dramatic events, they are a time out of time. I mean, the people experience something extraordinary that they'll never experience again. It's a state of, of it's an ecstatic state, and it's uh, it's it's the same during a great disaster. Katrina was the same way. I mean, people who lived 90 miles around the perimeter of the disaster didn't experience it because they just heard a lot about it, but they weren't in it. And so being, when you're in it, you experience something extraordinary which you immediately proceed to forget, as does the entire society, actually, because the one thing that uh, this uh, revolution does is it does this violent and extraordinary break of the past, and, you know, every emotion comes to the fore, and suddenly it's, a, it's an experience that will never be repeated. And then things start to settle down in some way. You know, people who want to steal the revolution will get right up to do that. And so they're very difficult times. And as people return and begin to forget, then, you know, I've, I've been back every two years in Romania. So to me, every experience is superimposed and layered on that, uh, on that original first one, which I, I consider kind of the big bang, you know, is that, uh, you know... Uh, a very great, you know, and, and inex- inexplicable, miraculous moment. And, uh, but everything else after that is just becomes a matter of adding to, to your perceptions so that, you know, it's a, it's a plus, I think. I don't think it's a loss. Of course, it depends who you are and when you left and, you know, what you lost and what you left behind and who you still have there. But, you know, to me, I always experienced every time that I was adding to, to my understanding of that place and that this place was also an addition, so I considered myself plus, 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 Baltimorean, San Franciscan, Romanian, American, uh, Jew, etc., etc. All of those things seem to me to, to make you be more interesting or more complex, or your work, at least, you know. So, I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, I cry sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was it the Romanian soul that brought out the poet? I think that's a myth with a factual side, which is that the factual side is that misery brings out poets. And so a country that's particularly cursed by history or geography, like Romania is in some ways, um, will tend to resolve uh, their, their condition metaphorically, their existential condition metaphorically, so that people will be more inclined to use an oblique language that is more poetic and will sound more poetic, plus humor, which is uh, tur- turns out to be a, sa- a literally a lifesaver in many cases. Uh, so yes, I think that there is something to uh, to 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 be becoming articulate in a language that uh, that takes care of contingencies of misery, and so uh, in that sense, yes. And of course, then there is the. Romanian saying that every Romanian is born a poet, which is to say that every Romanian is uh, born poor and will stay miserable, um, but will speak beautifully. Um, but that doesn't actually, uh, it's just not true, you know, because as we know now after so many years of the revolution, many po- Romanians are born economists. <laughs> I think all languages are good enough for whatever they set out to do. They, they all have an oblique relationship to the reality that you to your experience. So, uh, you know, what kind of noise you make, you know, in the process of living uh, is available to you in any language, you know. I don't think some languages are more... I mean, I, I think there are some languages that are more diseased, poetically speaking, like Italian, which can't stop itself from rhyming every five words. <laughs> the, the great Italian poet Giuseppe Ungaretti, who wrote very short poems, was very deliberate in his attempt to not rhyme, you know, and it, I mean, it practically cost him his life. He died. <laughs> he died in the, in the arms of his mistress, Anna, uh, <laughs> silently. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
stuff. Just remember, the reason I remember this because somebody said, well, so-and-so is dead, you know, and said, well, no, no, Ungaretti's story, so I was going to, so a reporter said, I was going, I called Ungaretti's house, and I said, I would like to speak to Giuseppe Ungaretti. He said, said Ungaretti è morto. And nobody knew. It hadn't been in the paper. Well, two days later, the announcement came because they had to, like, get him from his mistress's house in this town <laughs> back to his family so that he could be made into a proper death announcement. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so uh, concluding, you, we, we were outside in the hall talking before we went in. You've retired from teaching. You're yeah. no longer at the university. Yeah, in 2009. Did the exquisite corpse also stop? Or is yeah, it now I, a corpse? I, I, I finally <laughs> killed it. You know, I, I thought, well, exquisite corpse can die. We're online. We're, uh, corpse.org, you know. If you go, go there, you'll find it. Now, this is, it just says no. That's right. It and it's no. Uh, it's about it a bunch of no. objections. It says exquisite corpse, 1983. I started it in Baltimore. Right, 83. Right. 83, 2011. But... If you click on the no, you're the only one to know this. The magazine is going to come back up, and I keep adding material to it. So there is an underground, there is a secret corpse. It keeps living. So there are, I'm introducing this incredibly lively maggots in, in the body of it. That's good. So out of its grave. So it's still, it's still there. <laughs> so, well, you have to click on the no. Most people get so discouraged and they say, no about this big. It's true. Have you seen, did you see the website? Anybody look at it? I went there this morning to go, well, I haven't looked at this in a while. I went there and looked, and this is no, and I went, no? It's even no. an obituary there. Yeah, it was an obituary there. And I clicked it on, and, oh, it's alive, under the death. It's alive. Uh, yeah, no, we, no, the submissions now, I mean, we don't accept submission anymore. We, we are catering to independent spirits. I didn't have any... Uh, great expectation of the aftermath of the revolution in Romania. I already knew three days later, I was sitting at the Writers' Union with my friend Mircea Dinescu and Anna Blandiana, and they, we looked at the first issue of the rebaptized uh, communist newspaper, which used to be Scintea, the spark, and it was now called The Truth. The Truth? <laughs> yeah. The, the, and so the, on the front page, there are the pictures of all of Ceausescu's people had returned, and now they are behind Iliescu in the, in the photograph. And, Anna was outraged and said, look, I can't believe these guys are not only just still running around, but they are photographed as the new leaders of the, of the new government, you know. And, so they, and, and, and this was in a building that was occupied by Dinescu and taken in the name of poets, and it was Elena Ceausescu's old chemistry palace. She was a chemist, quote-unquote, um, on Cala Victoria, and he just took it over and claimed it for the revolution. And it was wonderful. So he moved in there, he says, and I threw everybody out of here except for the cook. He said, would you like a steak? He makes a terrific steak. <laughs> and some french fries. So he, sure enough, you know, he called this guy, came. He'd been the cook there for 23 years. You know, it's, you know, he came up and he brought us a steak. And, you know, meanwhile, they were very outraged about the comeback of the, the other guys. And then it turns out about five years later, and Dinescu wasn't the head of the Romanian Writers' Union anymore, uh, he said, well, now I'm taking back the Writers' Union. I said, how do you do that, Mircea? Didn't you claim it for the Writers' Union during the revolution? He said, yeah, but I put it under my own name. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, and we want to thank Andrei Kondrescu for coming back home to Baltimore. 